Welcome to Rerun, the podcast where we talk about our favorite episodes of our favorite television shows. I am Dori Shafrier, and today I am so psyched and honored and thrilled to have the writer and self-proclaimed nerd, Paul Ford, as my guest to talk about The Twilight Zone. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So before we get into the actual episode, I, I thought it would be good to give people just a little bit of background on the original, the original series, The Twilight Zone. So in 1959, this person, Rod Serling, who um, had been in World War II and worked in television for a while, he put on a television show. He, he got a show together called The Twilight Zone, which was his earlier stuff had been pretty a little more serious, maybe, or a little more like serious literature and theatrical, but The Twilight Zone was very much sci-fi. And one of their archetypal episodes was uh, called To Serve Man. And it's all about, is there going to be a spoiler here? It's a pretty painful spoiler. So, so It's a 60-year-old spoiler. Yeah, 60-year-old spoiler. <laughs> so it, it's sort of like, you know, these really helpful aliens come and, and somebody, I think the end of it, like somebody finds the book that they have and it's called To Serve Man. And they're, you know, the idea is like, wow, they're treating us so well. But when you open it up, it's a cookbook. And so that's like an archetypal like Twilight Zone. But that's funny. It is, right? It is funny. But at, some of them are super dark. Some of them are just that like 1950s, really depressing theatrical style. I would put the episode that we're talking about today in that category. A little bit, but it's a little more tongue in cheek with the main character. Like yeah, that's true. Some of them are like this guy runs the planet and they come to rescue everyone and he stays behind. Like there's these really bleak scenarios. This one is has a happy, like doesn't have a happy ending. It has a really, really painful ending. And it's, it's also about a nuclear holocaust. But it's kind of on the lighter side for the, for the Twilight Zone. So which episode are we talking about today, Paul? We are looking at an episode called Time Enough at Last, which stars Burgess Meredith, who uh, many people might know as the coach from Rocky. Sure. But this is about 8 million years sooner. I don't remember the exact... Although he already looks pretty old. He looks pretty Burgess Mer- Meredithy. Yeah. yeah. And he's, he's, uh, he's a very serious actor, actually, and he's really hammy in this. Uh, the, the plot, is, as it's set up, is pretty simple. He's a guy who loves to read, and there's this total. He's clearly like a writer proxy for this because he's just, all I want to do is read, and his wife is really mean to him, and his boss won't let him read, and he's, he's sneaking um, Dickens on the job. And, well, and he works in a bank, which is like the ultimate symbol of evil capitalism. <laughs> it is. And then his boss is just like, you know, if you want to read, you can do it on your own time. And so he's a very nerdy uh, guy. And they, they put him in owl glasses, these really ridiculous glasses, and uh, give him a nebbishy voice. And so that's it. You get actually quite a few minutes of him just wanting to read. He gets in trouble for, for badgering an employee. And then there's this amazing scene where his wife asks him, his name is Henry, uh, to read some poetry. And he opens up the book of poetry and she has crossed out every poem with like a, a heavy marker. Who did this, Helen? Who do you think did it, Henry? You should thank me, really. A grown man who reads silly, ridiculous, nonsensical doggerel. This isn't doggerel. There's some very beautiful things here. I say it's doggerel. I also say it's a waste of time. Helen, Helen, don't do that for Helen. Please don't do that. They make her so evil. Yeah, it it doesn't. I mean, it, it stretches any logic. Totally. She, yeah. 
that she's so angry about him reading. It's not like she's so angry about him going out and getting wasted or, you Well, know. and it's the mean... So there, I think there's two things going on. One is... Fahrenheit 451 is coming out, you know, and, and things like there's a sense of like the intellectual is the the victim in Western culture. And then she's the archetypal horrible wife. She's everything that people thought was evil about women. Yeah, she totally emasculates him. Yeah, that's the goal, right? Like, to, yeah, I think also that just that just plays a little like ridiculous now. I'm guessing it in the. Uh, when this came out, it, it played as just the worst, most horrible, humiliating thing for Henry. Right. Although the audiences might have thought he was a little pathetic. Oh, he is pathetic. Yeah. Right. But that's the thing. The debasement starts at work. Right. But then his wife delivers the ultimate debasement. And it's over poetry, too, which, you know, kind of there's an eye roll there. And it's poetry. What's he doing? So that's Henry. And Burgess Meredith is just, you can just hear the sort of like... <laughs> Everything is, is, there's a sharp intake of breath before everything. It's so good. And it's also, it's worth pointing out, it's really sort of, these are very pretty versions of these episodes on, on Netflix. Like they're actually really, like the black and white is kind of beautiful. So it's really pleasant to watch. That part's nice. And um, then he goes to work and he, he wants to sneak, he sneaks, uh, sneaks a little time in the bank vault to read a newspaper. Yeah, and he had already been, in his meeting with his boss, he had already been kind of taken to task for going down to the vault during lunch hour to read. Right, right. So he goes in there and he sits down and they set this up. It's a very, in retrospect, just like the special effects are, are ridiculous. It's just, <laughs> he's got his paper and the paper says... H-bomb capable of total destruction. That's right. H-bomb capable of total destruction. And... and. uh and then he's got a stopwatch and he's reading a book. And the book, it turns out, is Washington Irving's uh, Life and Voyages of Columbus. And when the H-bomb goes off, the book drops open to a given passage and his stopwatch cracks. And then he kind of passes out. The Life and Voyages of Columbus by Washington Irving, which apparently is very, very uh, poor history. Like he just kind of, there's it's a lot. It's meant to be nonfiction? Mm, I think it was just no one quite knew what they were doing when Irving was writing it. And he, he winged it and uh, uh, didn't quite land factually very well. At least that's the, the, so why Rod Serling would pick that as the book. But hey, it clearly isn't coincidental that that's the text that right. was chosen. It's, it's this apocalyptic moment about the discovery of the new world. And it's tricky because you don't know how conscious they were. Like it's a very quick prop. So mm. it makes you wonder, like, it's, was was The Twilight Zone actually that dense? I have no idea. It's such a random book. Right, I, I just, right. I, I, I have to, and they're so into, they kind of hit you over the head with the symbolism. True. And True. so I have to believe that that passage was meant as a little Easter egg, knowing that in 1959, people did not have the ability to pause their televisions and... True. See. True. They wouldn't have been able to even see the word. Right. So it's this little kind of like inside nod, I think. It's a great prop. I mean, it just, and it flops open and then the, the, the clock shatters. And then he goes out into the world. The very destroyed world. And the sets here are hilarious. There's just no way <laughs> yes, around it. Let's, just, let's just be clear. <laughs> yeah. If, as far as, I mean, it's really mixed because you get the sense everybody who's working on this was keenly aware of World War II as like their base of operations for how humans behaved. So that's 
probably one of the reasons the negativity was so prevalent throughout the series was that they were coming off of some, I mean, Serling had served in World War II. He was in Mm -hmm. the Pacific. And so they have seen genuinely the worst things about human nature. And they're trying to capture that at the same time they're on the, you know, they have a television network saying, uh, be careful with this H-bomb stuff. Come on. You know, like they, they're very censored like everybody was back then. Yeah. And they're also in this period of great economic growth and prosperity. Right. Right. That's when right. people probably didn't want to be reminded of the death and destruction that had happened in World War II. Yes, we were. Yeah, that's true. The world was trying to move on. Yes. And people like Sterling clearly weren't quite able to. And so you pick that up and then they, there's, you know, it's television in the in the 50s and early 60s. So there's not the greatest budget. And there's just these mats that are painted very roughly. There, was, there wasn't this clear black and white print like we have on Netflix. You were watching on this blurry little TV. But it's a little ridiculous. It's like, you know, old, old pieces of wood and, and, you know, the rusty piano and then just a big flat backdrop behind. There's also, you see a glimpse of the bank president's body. But other than that, there are no dead bodies anywhere. No bodies. No, none of that. And it, it's sort of when you consider the stuff that came later, like Threads or The Day After, which were very big on you know, the mass death of nuclear war. This is a very abstract H-bomb, especially given that everybody, you know, everyone in the room had read Hiroshima in The New Yorker, right? Like they knew what was up. And so they were clearly packaging it up for television, a little bit of like a family hour thing they probably had to worry about. And and so he comes out of the vault and it's just a complete wreck. And it looks like World War II, but, you know, as a, as a bad play set. And right. he kind of meanders around. He's grumpy, sad. He, he starts to get lonely. He has like a brief moment where he's like, everything's going to be okay. I found some food. And then he sort of goes into despair. That's right. He gets cans. Yeah. He gets cans. It, it's not it's like a really goofy version of the road, right? Like just sort of. Yeah, he's, he's, he lights a candle and he's like sitting there at like yeah. a candlelight dinner. That's the thing. Like part of me is like, I get to chill. And he keeps reading the same newspaper. Yeah. And this is where it's very, like, the theme overrides the plot because it's like he doesn't go looking for books. Right. He he just hangs out for a while until the the yearnings overtake him. And, right. And then he finds a gun. And it's about to get really bad for Henry. He's like, I guess I'm done. But lo and behold, he opens his eyes and it's the public library. In front of him. <laughs> just standing right there. Like, just, you know, if he... <laughs> He'd been facing the other way. The story would have been really just depressing. And this set is actually amazing. Like that that library set is the opposite of all the other mats. I mean, it, it clearly is some real building, and they've just scattered garbage all over it. And uh, and he's got all the books he ever wanted. Collected works of Dickens. Collected works of George Bernard Shaw. Poems by Browning, Shelley, Keats. Great dramas of the world. Books, books, all the books I'll need, all the books, all the books I'll ever want. Shelley, Shakespeare. And then his glasses break and he's cut off from civilization, which I love because he's just been trying to hide in his books and and suddenly this one thing that was linking him to industrial life was taken away from him. And just at the moment where it seems like, well, he's the last man on earth, but maybe it's going to be okay. 
That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. <laughs> it's not fair. I mean, it really is sort of an open subject, right? Because he's in love with reading. He's in love with all this literature. But he can't actually thrive without all the other things around him. You know, industrial society is gone, and so he doesn't get to read. And at one point, he even calls for his wife. Helen, right. He really misses her. He, yeah. he, you know, she crossed out all the poetry with a pen, but, you know, they they had some good times too. Like the time that she crossed out the newspaper with a pen. She doesn't do a or lot. Or when she ripped up the book of poetry. Yeah, this is not a not necessarily the, the greatest show for women in general. I think that this yeah. episode in particular, there, there's a lot of, in, in the Twilight Zone, it's a lot of like very pretty women just sort of like talking to the hero who is, uh, you know, just yelling at him, telling him that it's a bad idea or that he's crazy. Do you think that Henry Bemis is a hero? I, you know, I think he's the perfect writerly fantasy. I think he's a, he's a Mary Sue for writers, right? Like he's this, this, all I want to do is read. And so the, the original short story this is based on, he's a little less whiny in the story. It's a little more like, oh, just living my life and people don't like my stuff and people don't want to let me read and I wish there was more time to read and oh, the world ended and oh man, I lost my glasses. Like it's a little more, wouldn't this be crazy? Whereas this is the the show, uh, The Twilight Zone is more, what a pathetic wretch. Mm-hmm. But I really do think he is just like the perfect intellectual. All I want to do is think my little thoughts and my, with my glasses and you know, and these, it's, and uh, and then the bad mean people had a nuclear war, including you know Helen is also you know you can see her hitting the red button. Right. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to let you read any more right. poems. Right. And then that's that's that. And there's also this intimation of him having to take this job that he hates to support this woman who hates him. Right. His whole life is just meaningless. And all he wants to do is read Dickens and, and, and poetry and talk about it. But the funny thing is, is he doesn't have any theories or ideas about any of it. He just wants right. to consume media. So in some, t- some ways, he is a hero for our times. Ooh. Right? If we can just get... <laughs> we both work in, this, in the content industry. All we want are Henry Bemises. Who yeah. just want more and more content oh, all the time. Perfect, right? If we can just profile him, he makes enough money that we can sell him things. He's yep. a great consumer. I don't think that's the intention, but I do think that Henry is a perfect model for where we would like to get with today's modern content and media industry. Oh, I'm going to go kill myself. Well, <laughs> but the problem is that he uses the public library. We should have nuked that, basically. This would be a perfect story for our times if we simply destroyed the library and then gave him things to buy. Henry Bemis with a mobile phone would be so happy. Well, I was like, the way he reads the book under the the bank teller desk right. just seemed like he was looking at his phone. Yeah, he is. He's absolutely millennial. And, you know, he is ready to Whoa. go. Yeah, he can go down <laughs> into the vault. He does, that's the thing. Like, he. And sure, it's literature. It could, could still be literature. It could be Angry Birds. It doesn't matter. Just as long as we can get a branded experience on top of that, I think we're going to be okay. So a world of Henry Bemis is, is what we I- idealize now. Well, it, well, it's interesting that you say that because 
I think that scene in particular has become very much spoofed. Right. right, right. It's been, I think it's been on The Simpsons probably like 70 or 80 times. I mean, who's watched The Simpsons in a while? But but still. And- on Family Guy and Futurama, and there's like a bunch of other shows that have either alluded to it with like broken glasses. Right, it's, <laughs> or- very, I mean, it's very archetypal. Like, I'm yeah. going, you know, finally, finally crack. Oh, and then Rod Serling coming in like, this putrid garbage dog yeah. <laughs> will never read another word. <laughs> Um, do you remember the first time you saw this episode? I must have been a kid. I, I know I watched all of The Twilight Zone somehow when I was like in middle school. Like, do you think it was on VHS or do you? Th- it must have been. It must have been. It was either on VHS or it was like, you know what? They used to run it on public television. Oh. Yeah. So that was that. That and like Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And these, yeah, these sort of classic dark black and white shows got. A little bit of a resurgence. What kind of kid were you like, Paul? Oh, (laughs) just nerdy, you know? I mean, just, just, uh, I was the kid. I mean, the the archetypal story about me was that I really wanted, I really liked um, the Philadelphia area local news show. And I like went to get, there was a anchor woman I really thought was cool. And her name was, of all things, Rika Doofus. And I went and got her audition, (laughs) her autograph. Like, it's like the only autograph I've ever wanted in my life was Rika Doofus's um, autograph for KYW 1060. So that's the kind of kid I was. That's news radio. Yeah. Not, we're not even talking about television. No. You were an AM radio listener I as a child. Well, but radio, people don't remember this, but radio is like really good secret media consumption as a kid. You could get away with radio. Nobody knew you were reading. You know, people knew what you were reading. They knew what you were doing uh, if you were watching TV. But like radio, you could, kind of, you could have that late at night and nobody had any idea because mm. you'd have a clock radio. I miss that sensation of just trawling around the AM dial to find out what crazy nonsense people are up to. And it's changed. That world is is gone. But there used to be, in the the 70s and 80s, it was just so half-assed, you know. And actually, I don't remember. The 70s, I would have been, you know, four. But like... You would have been a precocious AM radio listener. you can't even imagine. (laughs) But like... But in the 80s, it would just sort of be, you know, somebody would be like reading a recipe at, at 10 at night. And you'd be like, what's happening? I'm eight. Something's going on. Uh, and so I think that that's – Twilight Zone was another one of those where it wasn't – and same with Alfred Hitchcock Presents. There were lots of ironies and in-jokes that you just didn't get, but you knew they were cool somehow – or if not, I mean, but it also wasn't something like I would never talk about it at school. Like I wouldn't like, oh, go to school and be like, right. "Hey, I saw an awesome Twilight Zone." <laughs> and like I knew enough not to do that because I wanted to survive. But did but you it, have siblings? I did. I had one brother, but he's much older. He's twelve years older. Oh, so okay. by the time I was six, he was in college. And um, yeah, so it was really like my my little constructed world, and. I had lots of friends, but this was never sort of like like computers and nerd stuff like this. I just knew you don't bring them up unless it's like a super safe space. Like you needed to, you know. You just, and when you're a kid, it's hard to tell who those people are because sometimes they turn around and like tell your secrets to be cool. Oh yeah, no, you no, no kids. Adults were fine. Like you could be like you could talk about stuff with adults if they were also interested and 
nerdiness kind of does tend to to skip age gaps really easily. Oh. Mm-hmm. Although I'm finding that I can't deal with 10-year-olds talking about Minecraft. Like, I'm just like, that's where my limit is. I'm like, oh, wow, a, a laser, you know, just whatever the hell it is they do in there. And I like Minecraft. I've played it for a day once when I was really <laughs> sad. And... Um, <laughs> And but I'm, when a ten year old is like, when you craft a far bar bar, I'm just like, I don't know. And I've had a lot of that experience. Like it is a common thing between like the ages of five and and twelve, and I have no idea what they're talking about. You you have kids now, right? I do. I have two. How old are they? Three and a half. Oh, they're twins. Yes. Have you introduced like what like how how I can't even wrap my head around like I'm thinking a lot about this right because first of all for them media is going to just be completely omnipresent and roughly free right they're going to listen to like I look at Spotify right they're going to have every song one of the things that's fun with them they they have a tremendous ability to for repetition like a, a three and a half year old can hear the same song a million times so I'll go get all the versions of a kid's song on Spotify and we'll listen to them one by one by one and they will react to that there's a few things going on one is they they have a lot of trouble like just kind of the idea of a different version makes sense but it doesn't really register they're like mm. oh like a, an instrumental will be fun because I'll be like what is it and it'll be the exact same song what is it but they also really pick and choose songs based on the quality of the cover. Because they like to look at my phone, look at the cover, and oh, be that's like, so that's good, or next, or that one's scary. And they don't differentiate between the song and the cover. And I, I thought that, like, oh. But then I realized, like, why would they? That whole thing. I'm like, no, no, it's just this. I'm trying to explain to them, like, no, we're just focusing on the song. They can't do that. They want to see them both together because they see it as a unified whole. Which, I mean, I used to go get vinyl and stuff. Yeah, sure. And so that's part of it. Um, But they're going to grow up in a world where I don't think they're going to grow up as phone-centric as we assume. Oh. I think that – I think there's just going to be – everything's getting really cheap. Like Mm -hmm. really – the things that are – that make an interesting experience are like going to be five or ten bucks, right? And so there'll be computers. There'll just be sensors and stuff everywhere. Like they'll probably have phones, but – I think it's going to be a lot more ambient and weird than than we're thinking. Like you know how we're always like, oh my goodness, a, some an eight year old writes about social media and everybody's like, oh no. <laughs> I don't think that. I think it's going to get like it's always really obvious in hindsight when things turn out. You're like, oh, of course that's how it happened. But I just think that there's going to be like this room that we're in now will have thirty little computers for no good reason all talking like the lamp well or whatever. And playing and manipulating that might be as much fun as playing and manipulating the thing that's on your screen. And it might actually be more social and entertaining. Like I could be I could be moving the robo lamp over to you quietly while we're talking and that could have a whole range of interactions that we haven't even considered yet. Um, it sort of sounds like a Jetsons meets her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that that's, that's, that's a good description, right? I don't know what they're going to make of something like this, a, a, a TV show like this. I'm assuming it will flow in with the billion other pieces of ephemera that surround them at all times. Whoa. <laughs> that seems very overwhelming. But fun for them. But yeah, totally. They'll go swimming in it. Totally. Um, do you have any like final thoughts or things you wanted to bring up before we... I don't think you can do better, I mean, than a Rod Serling close. 
Let's Henry do it. Bemis is now just part of the smash landscape, just a piece of the rubble. Um, Well, thank you for coming on. It's my privilege. Thank you. This was super fun. That's fun for me, too. And now I think I'm going to go back and watch the rest of The Twilight Zone. Awesome. Cool. Bye. Bye. Rerun is produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman with help from the BuzzFeed pod squad, Eleanor Kagan, Julia Furlan. Thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York as well.